start every evening for the duration of our study by doing a very brief review. Now, um, I don't want to reteach, obviously, everything that we learned last week because that would take the entire time, but just to kind of remind us where we've been just in the past week and kind of set the stage for the new material for tonight. So uh, we're going to launch right into a very brief overview. I will not necessarily restate every key person, every key event, every key relationship, but just kind of hit the highlights so we remember where we were. So last week, we started with the question of why do we need to even study the Bible? Why does a believer need to take time to read, meditate, study, memorize God's Word? We had lots of different reasons why. But we basically settled on three main ones. One is the Bible is God's inspired message to us. If God of the universe has a message for me, I think I should certainly take the time to read and study it. Um, so it's God's message to us. It's our owner's manual for the Christian life. Our required reading for a successful Christian walk. Uh, and finally, it allows me and you to get to know our Savior. Uh, when we study the life of Christ, we come to know Jesus better, and it's much easier to be like someone when we know him. And so those were three very important reasons, uh, many reasons that most of us would give for studying God's Word. But what's missing? Well, for myself and a lot of other believers, I think what's missing is kind of stepping back and getting that bird's eye view, looking at Scripture as a whole, one complete book, not just 66 individual books, and seeing the themes and the messages from Genesis all the way through to Revelation and how God's Word fits together uniquely and completely. So that's what we're about over the next 12 weeks. So from there we jumped right into our basically the template for our slides. Key people, 25 key people, 25 key events, and 25 key relationships. And I kind of fudge on the numbers because, you know, like down the road it's going to be like, you know, the 12 sons of Jacob. Obviously that's not one key person. But you get the idea. So either a person or a group of individuals. And so with our, with our uh, slides, we basically launched right into the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve. We saw the creation of humankind. Sadly, right after that, we saw the fall of man. We saw original sin enter the world at the moment that Adam and Eve violated the one command God gave them. Sin entered the world, and with sin came spiritual death immediately. And from that point on, every person born into this world has a sin nature that they have inherited from their father, Adam. And they are born into this world separated from a righteous and holy God who cannot tolerate sin. Uh, we talked about God's template for the biblical family. God doesn't have a lot of different patterns for the family. He's got one primary pattern for the family and for marriage, and that is one man, one woman for life. Till death do us part. Oh, I didn't mention this. If some of you guys are new, if you folks are new, there is uh, there is a stack of um, handouts back there. So flag Zeke down. He can hand you one if anybody anybody got some they need. Okay, very good. All right. From Adam and Eve, we went right into Cain and Abel, their first two sons. Um, sadly, we saw how quickly after spiritual death entered the world that physical death is now part of life on earth. We saw this with uh, Cain killing Abel. And we saw that sin is a process. Sin is not some accidental, random thing that I just sort of stumble into. It's not the devil made me do it. It's not, oops, I just wasn't paying attention. It's a process that can be interrupted at any point along the way. James told us 
that um, sin is a process that begins with a motive, and then there's an act, and then there's a consequence. And we saw that in the life of Cain. And then finally, last week, we covered Enoch. Uh, he was from the line of Seth, another son of Adam and Eve. And we talked about how he followed God. He, he was a follower of God. He walked with God. And God enjoyed communing with him so much that he brought him up to heaven, translated him from earth to heaven without having a pass through death. And how that was a foreshadowing of the rapture of the church. One day future, God will rapture us if we are still alive and remain before he comes back, uh, those of us who are alive will be caught up in the clouds with him, and we will not have to pass through death in order to be with Jesus. So, very brief review that, that brings us right into our content for tonight. Just so you know, not that any of you are you know, terribly worried about this, but we pretty much will do about two slides per week, and um, you know that looks like, gosh, that's not very much, but there's a lot. So, from there we go right into Noah. But I really want to set the scene for what's going on in the world as we encounter Noah. All of us know Noah. He's probably one of the first Bible characters that most of us ever learned about in Sunday school, in children's church. But he really was an amazing guy and and very unique in his time. So a word about the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth. Now, both of these guys were sons of Adam and Eve. Cain came first, then Abel, and then later on down the line came Seth. So Cain, we know that he killed his brother Abel, that he received a curse from God, that he would be a wanderer and a vagrant on the earth. He pleaded for his life, was concerned that his um, extended family would kill him. And God said, okay, I'll put this mark on you. And the mark basically said, whoever takes the life of Cain, God will revenge sevenfold. So nobody's going to touch him because, you know, nobody wants that. Um, So he has this mark on him. And then the scripture tells us that he settled in the land of Nod. I'm going to read a couple of verses tonight um, before I have you guys read. So Genesis 4:16 says, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in, Nod, in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This verse is very important because it states not just a location. It's not just, hey, Cain settled over here and made a nice life for himself. It, it talks about his motive. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Cain could have taken this sinful act, killing his brother, this the consequence or the punishment that was given to him, the mercy that he was shown, and realized, hey, this is my opportunity to turn away from my sin, to turn back to God, and to follow God the way he wants to be followed. But instead, Cain didn't do that. He said, I've had enough of this. I'm going my own way. So he let this horrible event mark his life, literally and figuratively, and he went away from God to the land of Nod. So his, his descendants, the Cainites, would be known as individuals who chose to live outside the will of God. Now, when I talk about the Cainites, a lot of people think, she's just saying Canaanites wrong, isn't she? She doesn't know how to pronounce that word. Canaanites refer to individuals living in the land of Canaan, which was the promised land, as Moses uh, brought the children of Israel and then eventually Joshua back to Israel after being in Egypt and in the wilderness. So those were Canaanites. These are Canaanites named for the father, their, their father descended Cain. So let me tell you a little bit about these people. The Canaanites were not primitive, Neanderthal type, 
you know, slugs walking around, dragging their knuckles on the ground, and, and just kind of grunting at each other. These were not cavemen. These were highly intelligent, creative, inventive men and women. Genesis 4 tells us that they built cities. Now, that doesn't sound like somebody who's just kind of grunting around trying to make the best of uh, surviving day to day. They built cities. Um, Genesis 4 also tells us some very important details about specific Cainites. It tells us about Tubal Cain. Tubal Cain was an individual who worked with bronze and iron. He was the very first blacksmith mentioned in scripture. Uh, Jubal was another member of this family and he was an early musician, forefather to David and other musicians who would come after him. Uh, and then Jabal was a tender of the flocks. He was a rancher. So these were skilled, intelligent, creative individuals, yet they were unified in their desire to, to not follow God, to follow their own way uh, in the world. So we contrast the Canaanites with the Sethites, the, the descendants of the line of Seth. Seth followed God, he loved God, and his descendants continued to follow God all the way through to his great, great, great grandson, Enoch, which we covered last week, that God translated up to heaven. So Enoch was of this line. But sadly, these godly men and women eventually died off. And what was left was children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that didn't really know much about Seth or their ancestors that followed God. And they began to intermarry with the Canaanites, and pretty soon you couldn't tell the difference between either clan. Basically, everyone was doing what they wanted to do at this point in history. So then we come to this verse, Genesis 6-2. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Now, I try to be very careful as we go through, and if I read a scripture or we read a passage, or I present something that is debated among Bible uh, commentators or expositors that isn't, um, that the interpretation is not rock solid, that there may be differing, differing interpretations, I try to bring that to light. I'll share what I think after, you know, research and, and, and looking at different commentators, what I think this verse may mean or this passage may mean, but I will let you know that there is some controversy and you can do more study on your own. So this is one of those verses. So based on everything that we've studied and, and learned thus far about these two lines of, of, uh, of um, relatives from Adam and Eve, I believe that this verse is speaking to descendants of these lines, that the sons of men, or as the Bible says, the sons of Elohim, refer to the godly men from the line of Seth intermarrying with the ungodly women from the line of Cain. And eventually, everyone chooses whomever they want to marry, and it's basically the idea of unequally yoked, of, of um, intermarriage between those who are following God and not following God. Now, there are Bible expositors who believe, and some of you may hold to this theory or this, this um, interpretation, that um, the sons of God could refer to spirit beings, to fallen angels that came down or came up, wherever they came from, and took on human flesh and married human women and um, procreated and uh, spawned sort of this super race of, of um, very powerful and possibly giantish 
um, individuals. And we're not going to get all into that. I would say that um, for the for those that do not hold to this position, there are other scriptures. One particular is Matthew that says angels cannot marry or be given in marriage. And this verse clearly states that whoever the sons of God were, they were taking wives and, and getting married. So um, I tend to hold to the position that these were intermarrying or intermarriages between lines that previously follow God and that were no longer following God. So you guys can do more research on that. I'll let y'all do that for yourselves. But anyway, so regardless of how you want to interpret this verse, the state of affairs is everyone is doing what they want to do at the time when Noah enters the scene. So now we're finally back to Noah. That was a lot of introduction just to get to right here. So Noah is our key person for this uh, section, and his name means rest. And somebody has Genesis 6, 8 through 9. Who's got that? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. What a reputation among the descendants of his distant relative Cain and among the descendants of his own line, Seth. Noah stuck out like a sore thumb. He was like the only guy who was following God, blameless in his time. Now we know he was not perfect. Because we know sin has entered the world, and everyone born comes with a sin nature. But his actions were ones that pleased God. And um, he was one that walked with God. He desired to have a relationship with God. So quite a reputation among, uh, and we'll read it when we get to the key relationships, about just how, how depraved humanity had gotten at this point. Um, so here we have Noah. And again, we've heard about Noah, we know about Noah. We know that he um, was tasked with, with a building an ark. So we move from Noah to the key event here, and that is the flood. I get so excited. I don't know why. I just think the flood is really amazing. And I think that as a biblical creationist, it helps me understand some things about how our world looks the way it does without having to go to rely on evolution. And um, so it gets me really excited when I talk about it, and you'll probably tell because of some of the stuff that we talk about tonight. But I'm going to talk. We're going to talk about the flood. This was not. Um, well, let me back up. If any of you have ever been to any uh, um, answers in Genesis events or seen answers in Genesis videos or you know movie series or anything like that, um, Ken Ham talks about a bathtub ark. You know what a bathtub ark is? The bathtub ark is the cute little thing that we, I mean, when Noah was born, we had a Noah's ark theme. Well, duh, his name was Noah. But, um, and we had the cute little bathtub ark. That's the little ark that's like, you know, this big, and the elephant's out here, and the giraffe's hanging out, and the bird's on top, and, you know, like four little animals all cute and smiley. This was not, obviously, what the ark looked like. Um, and if you are interested in specifics about what the ark looked like, how in the world all these animals fit, those kinds of things, I would direct you to Answers in Genesis. And there are movements afoot trying to, that website, by the way, AnswersInGenesis.com, I believe it may be org. But um, there are um, efforts underway to try to build a replica. I don't, haven't heard the status. I don't know if any of y'all are up on that. But to build a replica of Noah's Ark just so that people can come in and kind of see the magnitude. But this was a universal, worldwide, not local, not just Mesopotamia, but worldwide flood. Noah was tasked with building an ark to prepare for a coming flood when he had never seen rain. 
Up until this point, the Bible says nothing about rain, but there's plenty about vegetation and growth and gardens. So life is is flourishing here on earth without the presence of rain yet. Noah follows the, the directions that he is given by God to the letter, and he obviously endures much ridicule, uh, harassment, and um, probably shunning from his own family, extended family members, and those that necessarily aren't directly related to him as he's building this ark. Now, some look at the verbiage in Genesis 6-3 that mentions 120 years, and they say, well, that means that it took Noah 120 years to build this ark. But that was actually the countdown from God's issuing, I'm bringing judgment, to the point where the rain started. So basically, mankind had 120 years to get his or her act together and repent and begin to follow God. And sadly, we know that was limited only to Noah and his sons and their wives. So the 120 years was the countdown to judgment, basically. And when God told Noah to build this ark, most Bible expositors believe that his sons were not even all yet born. And so there had to be time for Noah and his wife to have all three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and for them to mature, come to a marrying age, take wives, and then be basically adults and ready to enter the ark. And so uh, uh, most people that have done extensive research believe it probably took closer to 50 to 75 years to build this ark. Still, that's a ridiculously long amount of time. 75 years on the same project, I can't imagine. So 75 years to build this ark. It's finally complete, and we're going to talk more about what happens as the flood you know, uh, takes place. But in the end, when Noah and his sons and their wives are on the ark, who shuts the door? God. There wasn't some cool little pulley system, Japheth wasn't on the outside pushing it, hey, hop back on right before the door shuts. God himself shut the door. And so by the time the door shut, the decision of who was going to experience judgment and who was going to be saved from judgment, that decision had already been made. Forty days and forty nights of rain. Now, when I think of forty days and forty nights of rain, I think of Seattle. I mean, I don't know some other climates. I just think of Seattle. I don't know that I could ever live there because of all the rain. But, you know, England. Um, this was not 40 days and 40 nights of mist and some sprinkles. And let me get my little umbrella out. This was torrential, continuous, um, dramatic, like, like landscape-altering water. Now, this is where it gets really exciting. The scripture states... Uh, that the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the skies were opened, or the sky were opened. This was not just rain from above, this was water from below. Now, if you're making notes out beside your, in your margin, write these words for your own later study. Hydroplate, hydro meaning water, H-Y-D-R-O-P-L-A-T-E, hydroplate theory. There is a, a really interesting theory by um, biblical um, geologists and archaeologists and biblical creationists. Um, in fact, my son uh, had to write a paper on this just this week um, for biology at Way Christian. But the idea is, if you go back to the very beginning of Genesis, very beginning, it says the Spirit of God moved over the surface of the earth and over the waters. Water covered the earth prior to God saying, let there be light and all that stuff. So water cups, so it was this big, like, you know, liquidy kind of plant. And then when we get to the point where God says, let there be dry land or let the land appear, 
Then land appeared up from under the water and separated dry land and water. So people who hold to this hydroplate theory basically state that there continued to be, after God created land, a layer of water below the earth's crust and mantle. So, you know, it's kind of like a cushy little layer. Nobody noticed it. It was sealed off. But at the exact time when God said, now is the time for this flood to start, cracks formed, giant cracks, down deep into the earth's crust and mantle, and this extremely boiling hot, supercharged water comes gushing out, geyser style, straight up into the sky, into the atmosphere. Boiling hot water meets cold air in the atmosphere. A huge vapor cloud forms. That, that in turn, that vapor cloud rains torrential, you know, gallons and buckets and buckets of water onto the earth for the 40 days and 40 nights. And so from that point on, we're going to talk about in a minute, the environment and the atmosphere very different than it was pre-flood. So again, you know, I can't say, well, this verse says this, but I mean, when, when God's word says the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were open, certainly we can know that water was coming up from below and from above. Okay, so a lot of rain, a lot of water. Uh, the flood lasted 370 to 371 days based on a lunar year, which is 360, roughly a year, just a little over a year. There had to be time, and this is a great trivia question. When you ask somebody, well, how long did the flood last? 40 days and 40 nights. No, that was just the water. Um, the whole flood lasted just over a year. It took time for the water to fall, and then the water had to begin. I mean, this much water doesn't just evaporate in a matter of days. So months had to pass, days and weeks and months had to pass. Water began to recede. The ark lands on Mount Ararat, and the tops of mountains become visible. Further water recedes. Noah sends out the raven, he sends out the dove three times, and then finally Noah and his family get to exit the ark. So a year on this ark with all these animals, I can't imagine, and your in-laws, and uh, yeah, anyway, oh, my husband's in here now, and, uh, and uh, I just, whew, that's, you know, uh, 371 days. That was probably an act of God's grace that they all didn't kill each other. So, a little bit more about what happened after the flood. So, once this flood takes place, you know, dramatic atmospheric changes, uh, that the, uh, the, um, it is presumed, like we don't, I can't point to a verse of scripture that says this, but um, some of this we can point to from scripture. Obviously, after the flood, there was a decreased lifespan. We don't see the Methuselahs. We don't see the 969s and the, you know, uh, 782s and the 848s. We don't see those. So we see a gradual decline in lifespan. We see decreased vegetation. Now the earth is going to start experiencing periods of drought and famine and local flooding and too much rain and not enough rain and too hot and too cold. And then decreased stability of the earth's crust. Now this is a definitely a creation scientist position. And um, again, if you have any interest in any of this information, answers in genesis.org, creation.com, uh, you can ask me for these later. The Institute for Creation Research. These websites um, talk a lot about how most likely that their their um, hypothesis is that when God created the world, um, initially it was basically one continuous landmass, which allowed for um, individuals to kind of move 
freely and, and travel was obviously easier. After the flood, we start to see, well, they hypothesized that, that the continents began to shift and drift and move closer into their normal natural position that we see them in today. We see, um, after this time, likely many more gorges and mountains. You think about how much water can do to a beachfront after 20 years of water erosion, or you know, a lighthouse, or a mountain. It, you know, if you drive through the mountains and you see the little trickles of water that have just carved you know, crevices, you can stick your whole hand in there over the past 20 years, an entire year with the world covered in water could do some pretty crazy damage, so to speak, to in topographical changes to the Earth's surface. So gorges, mountains, volcanoes, fault lines, earthquakes, we do know that some mountains were created on day three, but obviously more at this point. And then this is the part that I like. You know, you look at natural wonders around the world, things like the Grand Canyon, that an evolutionist would say, oh, Jenny, look at all these layers. You know, you know, it would have taken millions of years for all this sediment to be laid down and hardened. Well, it could have taken a worldwide catastrophic year-long flood as well. Um, so a lot of the things that that man, apart from God, tries to explain by you know other processes, this worldwide flood could could be responsible for some of those um, phenomena. So while we're on this topic, one more little side you know meandering, and I promise we're getting back to what's on here. When I've taught this before, sometimes questions will come up after class, and so this year I just put it in the front end. So all this talk about Noah and the ark and animals and what the earth looked like before and after. So what would a kid ask? Anybody have, have an idea? What, what about the what? There's, there's There you go, is Pat. What about the dinosaur? Where are they? So you must think like a kid. That's great. Um, so that was a compliment. Um, so where were the dinosaurs? So a couple things. If you accept a biblical account of creation, then dinosaurs were created on day six right along with the other land animals and man. So day six. Dinosaurs did not, could not, have become extinct before man came on the scene because we talked about over and over physical death did not enter the world until after Adam and Eve sinned. So you couldn't have had, you know, dinosaurs, you know, dinosaur, I don't know, um, ancestors coming out of the primordial ooze, evolving into dinosaurs, living for millions of years, dying off, becoming extinct, getting hit by an asteroid or aliens or whatever the popular belief is, millions of years before Adam and Eve ever showed up. So if you hold to a biblical account of creation, they, man and dinosaurs had to exist together. So they couldn't have become extinct until after Adam and Eve were on Earth. Okay, so there's no way dinosaurs could have been on the ark, right? Well, so. Uh, many species of dinosaurs grew only to the size of a large bison or a large sheep. Not every dinosaur was the ones we see on the Jurassic Park advertisement. So some were small. Also, even the bigger ones, could God in his wisdom not have brought them when they were babies? So, you know, if God had wanted to get some big, huge, you know, T-Rex, or I don't even know all the names, um, on to the ark, he could have brought them to the ark um, in their infant stage or in their adolescent stage. And just a little insert about the animals. Can you imagine the scene of God, not Noah, God bringing animals two by two in some species, 
Other species that would be later sacrificed were in sevens, not twos, at just the right time, in just the right state of health, at just the right size, all at the right time to get on the ark in time for God to shut the door before the uh, flood water started. So the fact that the animals were even brought to Noah and put on the ark is nothing short of miraculous. So I, I fully believe that the Lord could have brought a small dinosaur and stuck it on there. What else? Post-flood changes. So we talked about how different the earth likely looked after the flood. Could have explained why the dinosaurs started to, to die off. Many of these uh, dinosaurs were plant eaters. We already said now there's going to be drought and there's going to be less lush vegetation, more competition for food. they got to work a little bit harder to get it. Um, so gradually you could start to see different animals, not just dinosaurs, but other um, species and kinds start to die out. However, some dinosaurs very likely continue to live well past the flood. Anybody remember where there could be something that resembles a dinosaur described in the Old Testament? Behemoth, that's right. Job talks about an animal that he calls behemoth with a tail the size of a cedar tree. Now some people say that's probably a hippopotamus or an elephant. Have you ever seen a hippopotamus or an elephant with a tail the size of a cedar tree? It's like a little curly cue, yeah. Um, so, no. So, that certainly sounds like it could be a dinosaur to me. So, and then, you know, this is a little more like looking at the world at, at large, but so many cultures talk about dragons that there, there, a lot of people think that what was called dragons in literature in many cultures were likely dinosaurs, um, not necessarily fire-breathing. So, why no fossils? Why not a plethora of fossils of humans? and dinosaurs right together in the sediment. <clears throat> Look, we found, you know, T-Rex and Jenny McCreary right here, whatever. Um, well, just because you don't find similar, or, or just because you don't find two uh, individuals, two species buried or fossilized together does not mean they didn't exist at the same time. When my bones are found one day, I certainly hope they are not found adjacent to the bones of a bear or a tiger. But that does not mean that I did not live on earth at the same time that bears and tigers existed. I just make it my practice to not be where bears and tigers are. And so, you know, it is possible that if these certain dinosaurs were predators uh, for men for, and they wanted to eat humans, they would make it their practice to avoid them. So I don't really, the fact that we don't find, you know, just a ton of fossil record of the two together doesn't necessarily preclude that they could never have existed together. Lastly, uh, if I haven't convinced you yet, uh, the word dinosaur was not invented until 1842 when Richard Owen um, coined the word, and it means terrible lizard. So that would explain why it wasn't found in the Bible in the original language, because it wasn't around until 1842. So, everything you ever want to know, I'm sure, and more about the flood. Uh, so finally, we're going to get back to Noah. So Noah and his family have survived this year-long flood. They've gotten off the ark, and what does God tell Noah and his family to do after they leave the ark, or as they're leaving the ark? What does make he tell them? 9-1. Say again? Make an altar. Right, they, they make an altar, they worship, and then immediately after that, for Genesis 9-1, what does he tell them to do? Who else did he tell that to? Abraham. Who else? Oh, Adam yeah, Adam and Eve. He restates the, the command that he gave to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Spread out, procreate, fill it up. 
So that's very important when we talk about the next little um, individual that we encounter. So um, as we move quickly into the relationships, three main relationships here. The first is God's judgment. In God sending a worldwide flood to destroy the earth, we see his attribute of justice. God is a holy God who cannot tolerate sin. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't look past it. He doesn't brush it aside. He, he detests it, and he judges it. Who's got Genesis 6, 5 to 6? The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Thank you. In ten generations, God was grieved in his heart that he had made man. Ten generations. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I don't know how much more, like, less room for anything other than evil you can get, but that's pretty much all evil all the time. So God judges the sin of mankind. Basically, he does a reboot. Key relationship B is salvation. There you go. God's salvation. Whenever God brings judgment, he almost always provides a way of salvation, which demonstrates to us his attribute of love. Who has Genesis 6, 18, 19? Uh, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Thank you very much. So God says, I mean, God could have wiped the earth clean. He could have said, you know, Noah, you're an okay guy. You were doing the best you could, but you know what? I'm just done. I'm just going to start all over. Um, wipe the slate clean and start all over. But he, he provided a way of salvation for Noah and his family. Similarly, God could have left us in our sinful state, the state that we find ourselves in after the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve's sin. But he didn't choose to leave us there. He provided his son, the perfect sacrifice, to come to earth, die on the cross for our sins, and provide us a way to be reconciled to a righteous and holy God. But just like Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives had to get on the ark in order to escape the flood, we too have to accept God's free gift of salvation. It's not enough just to know. It wouldn't be enough just for Noah and his sons to be like, yep, there's the ark, and the flood's coming. I'm glad that ark's there. They had to get on it in order to experience that salvation. And we have to accept the free gift that God extends through, his, through Christ's work on the cross. Another evidence of God's love is the establishment of the rainbow. God could have just said to Noah, you know, I'm going to make you a deal, bud. I'm never going, to, never going to destroy the world again by flood, so just make a note of it. You know, just write it down somewhere. That's between me and you. He didn't do that. He gave Noah and his family and us, so many thousands of years later, a visual sign that he would never destroy the earth by flood again. So, and yeah, the rainbow. I mean, I won't get into that. Anyway, I got to say it. When... when Culture can sometimes take something that is a, um, an amazing gift, a covenantal gift or sign that God created and turn it into something that represents something that, is, that goes against God's word, I think is a poem. I'll just leave it at that. And uh, who's got Genesis 9, 12 to 15? 
And God said, this is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring the cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. Now remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. Thank you. I love the verbiage of that passage. I will remember my covenant as if God, the God of the universe, doesn't remember it already. But when he sees it, he sees what he put there. I'll remember what I said to you. And then the last key relationship is um, government. Capital punishment is established at this time in history. Uh, who has Genesis 9, 5 to 7? For your wife, Lord, I will surely demand in the county. I will demand in the county from every animal. For each man, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of the fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. In the image of God, as God made him. Thank you. Oh, that's good. We're good. Does it keep going? Did I cut you off early? I'm sorry. Mine. Keep going. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon you. Thank you. I cut it off in my notes. Sorry about that. So. If you shed man's blood, by man shall your blood be shed. And a lot of people who do not agree with capital punishment think it's barbaric and it's depraved and it shows man's evil nature. Um, capital punishment was not based on man's sinfulness or his depravity. It was based on the sanctity of life and the fact that when you take another life, you are taking the life of someone created in God's image. So um, this was God's doing, not our doing. Um, so, I have talked a really long time about the flood, so, and Noah, so any questions before I move on, please? I don't want to just keep steamrolling over you, so, questions, thoughts, comments? So there's no verse in scripture that says Noah No, he's going to do this. Um, saw rain, so where, where do you get that? Just, just hypothesis? Yeah, hypothesis and, um, descriptions of, um, vegetation beforehand, like the Garden of Eden, and um, um, but I, I don't have a verse. And so some of that, I would say, had to come from um, Bible commentators and, and expositors and such. So I can't, I can't point to a verse in Scripture that says, it did not rain. Any other questions? Just one <laughs> okay, about the bones. The bones may be there. We just may even never found them. Right, right. Yep, yep. I mean, we didn't dig deep enough or lost in three or four hundred years, so Yeah, it's very interesting. And and again, like tonight and for this next slide I'm gonna share a few things and I try to be careful about saying, you know, this is conjecture, this is theory, this is not necessarily a verse in scripture, and to be very clear about this is in God's Word. So, we're going to move right on really quickly. Um, I don't have as much on Nimrod. Obviously, I spent a lot of time on Noah. Nimrod. Who in the world is Nimrod? Kind of sounds like an insult or something that you'd hear on the 8th grade hallway at a middle school or something. You there, Ron. So, um, who has Genesis 10, 8 to 12? Okay. Um, Cush was also the ancestor of Nimrod, who was the first heroic warrior on earth. Since he was the greatest hunter in the world, his name became proverbial. People would say, this man is like Nimrod, the greatest hunter in the world. He built a kingdom in the land of Babylonia. Keep going, like read another verse or something. Um, with the cities of Babylon, Erech, Aphid, and Kalman. From 
there he expanded his territory to Assyria, building the cities of Nin Nin Nineveh, is it Nineveh? Nineveh, 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 sorry. Nineveh, 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 her translation is a little bit different than the New American Standard, and a lot of you folks may also use the, new, the NIV, the New International Version. Um, but who is this guy, Nimrod? He was son to Cush, and he was Noah's great-grandson from the line of Ham. We'll learn a little bit later that of the three sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, Shem would be the one that God put his hand on that would be, that would, um, he would be the line through which the, the Christ would come. But Ham was not the favored son, so Nimrod is a uh, member of the line of Ham. And he was revered because of his power over animals as a hunter. Eventually, he established his power over individuals, people as well, and became a leader. Now, there are questions among Bible commentators as to whether or not Nimrod may have at least started out his life following God. And they base that on the passage that Gina read where it says, "Light." well, this one says, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. That before the Lord phrase, they say, you know, that, well, it could mean, like her translation says, it just means, you know, ever, ever, never known, like the greatest hunter ever known, or it could mean that he was before the Lord in, um, in uh, servitude and service to the Lord. So, you know, regardless of how he may have started his life, it is widely held that he did not uh, end his life obeying God or following God. This is the parenthetical insert where I say, much has been written by historians about this man Nimrod that we do not find in scripture, but I share this because I always find it interesting when not necessarily biblical historical documents support or, or, or also mention characters found in scripture. Um, I don't feel like that's always a bad thing. Sometimes that could be a good thing to kind of validate where we are in history. Um, and so much has been written about this man Nimrod Again, not found in scripture. Some sources report that, and I read a ton of them, that Nimrod's death, after Nimrod's death, his wife, Semiramis, I don't know where they got her name, it's not in the Bible, but I can find, uh, declared Nimrod to be the sun god. And she went so far as to say that he had been re reincarnated into her infant son. So Nimrod croaks, she's got this baby that she's had with Nimrod, and she says, well, this is the spirit of Nimrod, and he is the sun god, and you must worship him and that she was so persuasive in convincing others to worship this baby, which was supposed to be the spirit of Nimrod, that, um, that, the, that it's, it's postulated that the idolatry of this individual spread to many cultures, and that the idea of a sun god all kind of stemmed back to Nimrod, and he would be known as Mithra in Persia, Sol in Rome, Ra in Egypt, or Apollo in Greece. So I think it's interesting that, you know, that potentially Greek and Roman mythology could reference a character that was based, at least loosely, on the life of someone mentioned in scripture. I just kind of find that interesting. So Nimrod was a very well-known and popular and powerful guy in his time. So, and then what we do know for sure is that the, um, all those amazing names that she read, the cities that he established were known for their wickedness. Babel became Babylon. Nineveh, what, Nineveh was an exceedingly wicked city that needed a, a, a missionary to bring God's message. Who was that? 
Jonah, that's right. So um, the cities that Nimrod is associated with as establishing and perpetuating were not cities of individuals that follow God. Key events. Who has Genesis 11, 1 to 4? Thank you. So if you go back to the passages that we've read, Genesis 10, 8 to 12, and uh, Genesis 11, 1 to 4, uh, Nimrod's kingdom, if you will, the cities that he established uh, in the land of Shinar, most likely, Bible scholars believe, was probably uh, southeast Mesopotamia. Within this kingdom, a city is being built that would bring its builders renown, power, and prestige. And the central focus of this city would be a tower that would reach to heaven, likely uh, a religious center. And some of, um, if you remember way back in your like world history days, remember the Sumerians and those little ziggurat things? Some have, have uh, suggested that maybe this Tower of Babel looked kind of like the ziggurats that were popular among the Sumerians. Uh, so it wasn't like, you know, Jenga, you know, just kind of let's throw some blocks up there and hope it holds. I mean, this is a a well-oiled machine of builders and organizers building this tower within the city. And as Ms. Kitty read, um, we want to make a name for ourselves, and we want to reach to heaven, and we don't want to be scattered abroad. So that was kind of their point. The actions of these individuals, likely led in some way by Nimrod, demonstrated their pride and their determination not to follow God. This was the first time we read about someone. Um, now we, we read about Cain, you know, not giving an appropriate sacrifice, but he was still trying to to sacrifice to the one true God. Here we read about individuals trying to get to God all on their own, um, and this basically is the beginning of false religion. Uh, who has Romans one twenty five? Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed blessed forever? Thank you. I kind of extrapolated that out. If you read the, the first chapter of Romans, it basically talks about the depravity of man and how um, left to his own devices, man's sinfulness just kind of, you know, goes farther and farther down. But when you get to verse 25, it basically says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and, and, and chose to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Until now, when we read scripture, it's kind of like this guy followed God, this guy didn't. Um, and, you know, we don't read about a whole lot about the ladies quite yet, but, you know, that's kind of the idea. These men and women obeyed God. These men and women didn't obey the one true God. But now we're starting to see a shift where men and women are like, you know what? We don't really like this God, and we're going to make our own God, and it may be us, and we're going to get to this God however we choose. So I would, I would propose that at their core, false religions have two main ideals. One is an attempt to get to God by any means other than through his son, Jesus Christ. So an attempt, whether it's, whether it's um, actions, whether it's trying to achieve a higher state of consciousness, whether it's good works, trying to attempt to get to God by any means other than through his son, Jesus Christ, 
is kind of the first tenet, if you will, of a false religion. And second is the worship of creation rather than the creator. And this would include self-worship and, uh, you know, self-aggrandizement and and, and lifting oneself up as I'm a God and I can become like a God. So an attempt to get to God by any means other than through Jesus and worship of the creation rather than the creator. So uh, the Tower of Babel was um, obviously not a good thing. Uh, So there we move quickly to the uh, key relationships here. And so again, we see God's judgment in the midst of man's sin. Who has Genesis 11, 5 to 7? But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible to them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Thank you. I really pondered over the phrase, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. He didn't need to come down. Why did he come down? Why did, I mean, he could see it from heaven. Obviously, he knows it's being, you know, constructed. Um, I don't know the answer. Um, possibly to show that God is intimately involved in the details of his creation? I don't know. He knows what we're doing, but... This verse says, or this passage says, he came down and saw. And notice the us uh, in the toward the end of that passage. Come, let us go down. Another reference to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit involved in pronouncing this judgment. Not only do we see God's judgment, but we also see God's restraining power. That passage says they all have the same language, and this is what they be, if this is what they began to do. Now, nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible. So we see God's restraining power. He intervenes now to prevent these men and women from continuing on their same course and from letting sin have its natural result. Um, and, And God may even do this today in the life of the believer or the unbeliever. He may intervene in whatever way he chooses to thwart man's progression into sin. That is his prerogative. And then the key uh, relationship B is the dispersion of the Gentiles. So first, God comes down, sees the tower, and says, we got to confuse our languages. You know, you can't say, hand me, a, hand me a hammer, or I need another screw, or, you know, we need the paint can over here if nobody understands what anybody's saying. And so that's kind of an obvious, well, duh. So as they're standing around, you know, looking at each other with these quizzical looks, now they're going to be spread out. So who has Genesis 11, 8 to 9? But the Lord scattered them from all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. This is why it was called Babylon, because the, the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And now the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Thank you. So they were babbling, thus the name, the Tower of Babel, Babylon. So God uses this um, event uh, and the confusion of the languages to spread them out. Spread them out. Doesn't that sound kind of contrary to what it is they said they wanted to to accomplish? What they said back in Genesis 11, 1 to 4 was, let's build ourselves a city whose tower and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad. So God basically forced them to do what they would not do on their own. The very thing that God had said to Noah and his family upon releasing them from the ark was, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, spread out, 
populated. And these individuals in, involved in the Tower of Babel had done exactly what God said not to do. So on that bright note, we will end for tonight. So thank you for your attention.